to our utter amazement, we have a chance of getting this episode under 90 minutes, so we're going to keep this intro short. This is a very special episode on a very special movie with a very special guest. It's Lake Mungo on this bonus episode of Scary Stuff. Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and is always joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. And Jacob Jones Goldstein. Howdy. And this time, we have a very, very special guest with us. You would have heard him on our show before. We've interviewed him a couple times in the past, but he's gracious enough to join us and actually talk about a movie with us today, and we couldn't be more thrilled to have back on the show Dave Lawson Jr. of Rustic Films. Thank you. Yay! Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, thank you for coming on. A pleasure. No, this is, I mean, you know, we talked about this. I fucking, this movie killed me. So uh, I can't not, this, by the way, this is going to be therapy for me. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) It's probably going to be therapy for all of us having, since we've all watched this multiple times and even fourth or fifth viewing, this movie would still be mildly described as shattering, I think. So it broke me the first time I watched it and I had to see it alone and then drive in hours or so afterward. <laughs> the first time I watched this was while I was like staying up to make sure my daughter kept breathing through the night and I watched it <laughs> while I watched her sleep which just Oof. I mean it that's it's not a good it's, it's not gonna, oh man and then obviously I've done a bunch of research since then and then I watched it again this morning at 7 a.m. and I realized there's just not a this is like Dear Zachary where it's oh. like there's just not a safe time to put this movie on nope I, I watched it this week, one of the times I rewatched it for this podcast, right before I went in for a sleep study. So I can say watching this and then going into a hotel room where a disembodied voice is going to talk to you while you're being videotaped in the dark is not a good choice. And I don't recommend it. Yeah, you fucked up those results hard. Oh, yeah. Not my best idea ever, but still a great movie. So. Just not what you want to be thinking about when you're trying to sleep with a bunch of wires attached to you. Yeah, no. <laughs> or ever, if you ever want to sleep. Yep. That's true. I actually saw this one in theaters when it first came out back in 2008. Wow. It was a part of the uh, After Dark Horror Fest, mm-hmm. uh, doing their eight films to die for yearly pilgrimage for me, it was. Real quick, After Dark Films is an American horror original and action film production company and distributor founded by uh, Courtney Solomon. They organized the After Dark Horror Fest which about four times they'd have this annual at select theaters over a weekend that would show eight films that they were arguing were too extreme for normal uh, release. And um, I made it my own personal goal to go to each one, which got harder and harder each year because the theaters that would still do it dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. <laughs> like, so there's nothing in Delaware. So I was always going to Pennsylvania to the last one. I had to go up to like mid Jersey and then it was gone. But it was a fun time while I was there. And so I totally saw this one by myself in a theater and then had to drive home an hour and a half going. Ah. That's, so, oh my God, that's so unsafe. That's just not even a safe way to live your life. Uh, just seeing faces on the side of the road every 10 minutes. like ah. Yeah, I'm not sure which of our choices was worse, but I think probably yours. I at least got to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I stayed up and watched my daughter who had just been born like three weeks prior. So that wouldn't. All right. Yeah, you win. <laughs> no, you <laughs> win. <laughs> I will say this regarding that. 
it was a little bit confusing at first because you mentioned that it's after dark film. Amazon Prime, which this is available on in the if you have a Prime subscription, lists it as after dark Lake Mungo. It's exactly the same, but if you watch it on Shutter, it's just Lake Mungo. And I in Googling this, I saw a lot of people asking that question. And yeah, same thing. Also available on Tubi for free. Yes. Yes, it is. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Related to that, let's mention just a couple things up front. One is if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, just go see it because as always, we're going to spoil everything. And also, I'm pretty sure that what you're about to hear is 90 minutes of us gushing about this movie. So if you haven't seen it, go see it. We're definitely going to spoil it. I'm probably also going to spoil Picnic and Hanging Rock in the event that anyone actually hasn't seen that movie, because that's the movie that this is usually tied to. And I had never gotten around to seeing it. And I finally did this week. And that movie's a masterpiece. Second thing. So this episode is probably going to be coming out after the found footage episode we're going to be putting out in May, but we're recording it beforehand. And we're probably going to be putting it out in conjunction with the release date of the special edition Blu-ray, which is coming out from Second Sight. And that special edition Blu-ray has a lot of phenomenal features on it. In particular, Dave's associates from Rustic Films, Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, have a featurette on there called Kendrick Spirits, just talking to each other about the movie. It has an audio commentary by Emma Westwood and Alexander Heller-Nicholas. Alexander's awesome. And she has a phenomenal book on found footage. There's an article by Mary Beth McAndrews, who is another fabulous found footage writer. So the website is secondsightfilms.co.uk. But even though it's .co.uk, this particular release is region free in Blu-ray. But by the way, I had no clue Justin and Aaron were on that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Learn something new every day. And also on there is Rob Savage. Rob Savage, if you haven't seen, is the director of Host, which was all the rage in 2020. I fucking loved Host. There's probably not a director's commentary on it, though, huh? There, No, there is no director's commentary, no. <laughs> He's uh, the director. I don't know if he counts as a recluse, but if you look around for this film, I was able to find one interview he did. And if you look at his IMDb profile, there's a couple of shorts listed, one of them which I watched, which was a comedy thing with Gravity and Clippy. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's him. I'm guessing it is, but I, I wonder if that might be an erroneous imdb entry the one he did before this is a short called the rotting woman which for the life of me i could not find but i found a lot of reddit posts about people who also could not find it for the life of them so that makes me feel a little bit better there's an entry for it on screen australia's hub i guess they have like a landing page basically for any australian produced short or feature and most of them have a like click here to watch and it'll link you to whatever the viewing site is but there isn't a click here to watch on the rotting woman there's just a landing page with like a one-line synopsis which i mean i guess all of that kind of fits with the film itself to just drop off the map but it's a shame because it's a brilliant film and you think this guy could have gone on and done more brilliant films people say that he was not a fan of hollywood and that's why this never another he never made another movie which makes me real sad because i feel like there's a whole lot of directors who have that experience where it's like they weren't taken care of. And that, that makes me real sad because I don't know what else he had in his head. But I watched this movie and immediately tried to track him down, uh, which is like, you know, the highest compliment I can give somebody because mm-hmm. I just like I wanted to just see what else he had done. And I find out that this was maybe the only thing we'll ever get from him was sad. But also, uh, you know, uh go out on a high note, I guess, like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. if this is all he ever is known for. He won. 
if you're one and done, what a one. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because he, in the one interview and in another article I found, which I think was just referencing the interview, he talks about how he had an idea for a much larger project. Right. And he eventually whittled it down. And that's what became Lake Mungo because financial constraints. I mean, a lot of this was funded by the, the Australian government and their arts funding. And he talks a lot about that. And you would hope that this would have springboarded him to something. And I I mean, I don't think it was a financial success. It's hard to tell or what even constitutes a financial success when you're making an indie festival film. But I feel like just, you know, knowing a bit of the inside baseball in this, I feel like this probably easily made money, but only because there was soft money attached to it. Mm. And it probably would not have had to make a bunch of money to recoup. Yeah. That being said, it depends on the, the meetings you get set up on whether or not you become very dissatisfied with how Hollywood operates. Mm -hmm. If he had gotten set up with meetings with companies like ours, he probably would have been really jazzed because we really would like to just foster that. But there are other companies who are like, this is our idea. What can you do to make our idea ours? And that's where I think a lot of people get, you know, people are like, oh, they, that movie was terrible. It's like, well, that director didn't have as much control as you think they did. Yep. Especially when you get into bigger projects. Yeah, that's something we ran across actually in our very first episode when we were talking about the latter Return of the Living Dead movies, mm -hmm. you know, which were stunningly bad. <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> I'm talking about the last two, Necropolis and Rave to the Grave. Yeah. No, we have it on record, Nick. Don't even try, Nick. I mean, bad. Nick, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I will probably fight you if you say that these are good because they're not. Because <laughs> no, and I like they're awful. I like all movies. They're not good. I always try to be nice, but they're they're just bad. <laughs> but the point is, is that there was the book that came out about them and they, they talked about it. it's like, like we had these better ideas. These weren't the movies we wanted to make. These are the yeah. movies we kind of ended up having to make. And right. you, you can understand that. And you can understand why that would be incredibly disheartening if you wanted to make films. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit off the air. It's like, it's so hard to make a movie. It's so hard just to get a movie made. And, and then there are then so many obstacles on making a good movie. And when you're kind of put behind the eight ball and it's like, you're never going to win that battle ever. You know, what do you, what do, you do? You, you you come up with the best thing that you can come up with. And then in his case, he's just like, no, fuck it. I'll go do something else. I don't know what else he's doing, but it makes me sad that he's not making movies. I'll, I'll admit I glanced at LinkedIn just out of curiosity, but there's probably 9,000 Joel Andersons. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the problem. His name is so common that like, again, you know, I watched this while I was watching my daughter sleep. So I had another two hours after I watched this film before it was my wife's turn. And uh, I went on an Internet deep dive trying to find him. But that name is so common. And he went so fucking underground that, you know, I'm sure somebody could find it based on VPNs, but I'm not trying to trying to be a stalker here. Yeah, no, we're we're definitely not stalking <laughs> anybody. I was just oh, yeah, curious. Jake? Oh, if, we're not. Are right, we, Jake? Jake? <laughs> I already told you that was an accident based on a single Google search. Leave me alone. But speaking of just the difficulties of making a movie for this movie in particular, and by the time this comes out, we'll probably have talked about this a bit in conjunction with Savage Land. But this particular version of found footage is, I guess, what is generally referred to as, quote unquote, mockumentary format, where it's mm -hmm. very much done in the documentary style, which to me, at least based on the ones I've seen, is such a balancing act. It's difficult enough to capture something that feels real and immediate 
in a found footage film, but especially doing it in this documentary format. And Lake Mungo, I think, does it better than any other movie. It's spot on that I've seen. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I would agree that Lake Mungo is maybe one of the best mockumentaries. And to say, call it mockumentary because that that sounds like a derogatory, like this is Spinal Tap kind of. Yeah, uh, I associate <laughs> it with with comedy, right, but a lot of folks like, lately seem to be using it for that niche of found footage. But this is you know, all found footage films are at their core mockumentaries because yes. they're you know even Blair Witch is a mockumentary. This is a wonderful job. And to shoot this, it's 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 a double-edged sword because you get your interviews and then you have to fill in with all this B-roll that doesn't necessarily make sense. Yep. So I'm curious on how the actual production of this went, but my bet is they shot all of the interviews and they shot a good chunk of what they thought was B-roll. And then I bet there was probably 20% of the movie that was shot after the edit is done. And it, I just know that because I've made movies like this where it's just like now you have to go back and like fill in those gaps of like him spooling up the reel mm -hmm. or, you know, looking through the you, just the little interstitial things that you just never know that you're going to need when you're creating just a full narrative, a narrative beat that you just hear like, I need some kind of visual here. Like a proper transition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that would explain the scene where the car is driving backwards and he has to explain why. <laughs> yeah. Which is the single most random thing in the entire film. But you, you know what's weird? When I was rewatching it this morning, I in that hit, I was like, it's so bizarre, yes. but it also fits so perfectly in that moment <laughs> where it was like, yeah, I mean, I guess you would just drive backwards. Like, I'm trying to, like, just put myself in that, like, you just lost... You've lost a child and that that's, you know, there's no word, the old adage is there's a word for losing a husband and a word for losing a wife, but there's no word for losing a child because it's such a, it's not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen. Right. It's not something that you want to think about. Yeah. And so it's like the idea that there is, is just so almost comical because it's not supposed to happen. I, I really liked that scene because it was very much a, even in times of crisis, we have to admit that weird side shit happens you yeah. know and that it, was, it made it very human and real to some degree mm -hmm. it was just like, just oddball but it was like that's life sometimes this stuff happens yeah next to the horror it's one of those scenes that works better on your second viewing than your first viewing that would be i would agree with yeah I, I I would argue that almost this entire film works better in the second viewing because you're looking because you're looking <laughs> and like I watched this film so intently on the second viewing because I was trying to find I mean obviously we'll talk about it but like the bits of Easter eggs that they had placed because they don't cheat it's all there oh. it's all right there in the the mise en scène if you will I hate to use the term but it is what it is <laughs> uh, it's all right there on the screen um, by the way this is the only downside of watching it on Tubi is they cut off the credits and the credits oh! Oh. real quick I just want to say to the audience if you haven't turned off this episode yet you really really need to know that this movie has one of my favorite twists and catch you at the end kind of situations that I've ever had the credit sequence of this film is the single best credit sequence of a film that has ever existed and yes i mean i watch i watch more movies than most people in the universe <laughs> i watch at least probably a movie a day the credit sequence in this film is the best credit sequence that has existed and i will fight anybody that says different i am begging begging you at home listener to just turn this off now and watch the movie first if you haven't yet it's literally free on Amazon Prime. Yes. And it's one you absolutely you don't want to know too much going into it the first time. Yeah. Because it does such a neat trick of not 
telling you what the movie actually is until really the last quarter of it. And it changes kind of what you think you're watching and evolves as you're going through it. And I, I think it's just so well done. But if you don't know the end, yeah, yeah, it's like anything we talk about. You just you need to see it before you listen to us ruin everything for it. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, the only caveat that I'll mention is that like I, I was talking to somebody earlier today about this movie because I, I, you know, again, rewatching I was chatting with him and I was like, this is a masterpiece in, in grief, mm-hmm. in dealing with grief. And understanding the process of how people grieve and in saying that it doesn't necessarily give it away till the last quarter is, is a slightly disingenuous because I think it does. It just changes what it is yeah. several times throughout the movie. And it's like, you know, that you, you've got that first bit where they're dealing with it and then you have the middle bit where they're dealing with new information and then the final bit where it's like, oh, now we're now we're really talking about some fucking bonkers shit. And I, I think the movie changes, but what I think is important is that it it talks about grief in a way that films don't these days. And and I, I tease several of you on, on Twitter. It's like, I was like, we're going to, we're going to talk about how, why Lake Mungo is required viewing. I actually think Lake Mungo is required viewing for right now because of the number of people that have lost people in the last year and haven't been able to grieve properly, whether that's seeing them actually pass or, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a fucking worldwide pandemic. There are people that have not seen their parents did not see their parents pass or loved ones pass. And there, there's going to be like weird grieving things. And I think that I think that this movie is going to be weirdly cathartic for a lot of those people because they're going to be able to watch that and be like, oh, OK, this is like a common this grieving process is common and it's not I'm not weird. You know, it could help them get through that. And obviously, until you get to the third act where it gets fucking bonkers, but <laughs> the humanity of it is is real. Yeah, you had said when we talked about She Dies Tomorrow, you had mentioned on that film, you had said, I don't think this movie is going to make you feel okay, but I think this movie might make you feel okay about not feeling okay. Yeah. And that very much carries over to this movie in its way as well. Yeah. This movie is not going to put a salve over you know wounds or grief, but it will make you feel at least more comfortable with what you're dealing with. Yeah, there's a weird part about about just knowing that, that knowing that you're not alone in your feelings that makes that feeling like have a bit of like resonance in yourself where Mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, this is cool. Like I, I don't, I don't like this, but it's fine. This is, this is normal. This is the process that has to get to. I actually have a quote from the director talking about that. And let me tell you, there's not a lot of these, (laughs) but it's from an interview from after dark films that was on Facebook of all places where the interviewer asks him, uh, what intrigued you about the story? What made you want to tell it? And the director, Joel responds, Well, I think just as a hypothetical, the idea of someone in your family or someone you care for dying and being in a tragedy is the one thing I think everyone fears most. It's a very human, very genuine fear. And I think that it's also great for drama in that respect, because it's a way of exploring a lot of things about what is important to people, how people deal with the unthinkable happening, how people deal with grief and how things are senseless. You know, a terrible accident just doesn't make sense. So it brings up all sorts of questions about this. Is there a logic to the way things work? Is there a pattern or is it just nonsensical? So I think you have to confront really serious dilemmas and you don't do it intellectually. I think you do it through grieving. I think you do it through the struggle to make sense of your world. It's really ripe for drama. And I think the potential, the idea that they might still exist in a paranormal sense, that there might be something of them left behind is incredibly strong. And people have very strong affinity with that idea because it gives hope. 
It's a strange kind of hope, but it's better than nothing. So I think those were the things I found quite compelling ideas for a story. And I would say that that's accurate and that yep. when you talk about it being a very timely film, that certainly is because, you know, it's hard to make sense of what we've all been through the last year. I mean, we've all had personal losses. We've all found ourselves in weird situations. I, to get too personal, I had family members who passed away that I watched funerals on a live stream. Same. And that doesn't work. And as you said, having a film like this, it does help you think about how all that works. It makes you feel part of something larger. And it, it, it helps. Grieving is hard. And media and films that tackle that can be rough, for sure. I mean, I bawled like a child the first time I watched this film. <laughs> but it is absolutely you know, one of those films that's very cathartic. And I think that, that you touched on a bigger thing, which is survivor's guilt, which is a big part of, you know, PTSD, which is, is that, you know, we survival's guilt, I think, is almost a, a nomenclature that should be thrown away because I think, you know, if you survive, you feel like a responsibility that you should have been able to save whoever didn't survive. And that, you know, you can definitely see that with the parents and the father in this film and even June, where it's just like, the only thing they wanted to do was to make sense of this and, and, and be like, no, 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 this should have like, I mean, it's, it's weird. I say like as a new dad, I, I can't even imagine my daughter not, not surviving. And, or, or mm. like to me, it's just like, that is just like a, the worst fucking possibility. And if there's a way yep. that I could like put myself on that altar, I would in a heartbeat without a thought a thousand times over. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine watching this film as a parent. It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. Yes. Yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> it's really not fun. Good God. Oh. Try watching it as a new parent. It's in where your fucking <laughs> emotions are all over the place in general. It's like you're already compromised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm already compromised. I am not sleeping. My emotions are all over the place. And also I'm a filmmaker, which I like. I just I feel like that allows me to become more uh, entrenched in whatever story it is. Like, I know what you're trying to do and I'm just going to, I'm like going to buy in always. Yeah, no. So I, I think that, that I really feel like, and, and it's going to be weird. I feel like this is required viewing for anybody that lost somebody during COVID because we didn't have the closure. Yeah. And I mean, that's June's June's whole storyline in this film is that she just doesn't get that closure of, of seeing her daughter. Mm -hmm. And then even when she does, that's when more things start happening. But like the whole inciting incident is June's, the, the fact that she didn't go look and see that it was her daughter. Like if that had happened, this movie's over probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if it was real, <laughs> right. It'd be tough to finish the story at that point. Yeah. And that was what was part of what was so resonant watching this in juxtaposition with watching Pitnick at hanging rock for the first time. So spoilers for that movie, but I think this is pretty well known at this point. That movie famously has no resolution. You know, it sets up this mystery and there is zero resolution to it. And this movie very much riffs on that same concept and also shares with Picnic and Hanging Rock the same sense of of constant dread, but also this sense of being dwarfed by this grand and seeming uncaring, if not outright malevolent you know, universe around you. So in Picnic and Hanging Rock, the, the titular Hanging Rock is always shot you know, from below, giving it this sense of scale with this ominous music that plays overhead. Mungo mirrors that too. Like we, you talked about the B-roll earlier. So much of the B-roll is 
night shots where they accelerate the frames, but it's this expansive sky that's just rolling over or shots of the hills in the backgrounds or the titular like Mungo sequence where it's all this where you're trying to find meaning, but everything just feels so indifferent to the cruelty of the situation, if not outright malevolent with everything in the background looming over the lives of the characters in the middle of it. Yeah. And then you throw in that everything is improvised in terms of the the dialogue. No dialogue prescripted. Also, okay, dialogue aside, this is one of the notes that I literally have on my on my post-it note here. Um the <laughs> the nonverbal acting mm. of these actors in this Splendid. is off the charts good. The looks that they give after cuz Joel plays I think the interviewer yeah. of the documentary in the film the the looks that they give after he delivers something is i mean that just hits on such a level that you're just like fuck you <laughs> fuck you <They're> like <laughs> you, you said nothing you said nothing but your look just you know and if i'm not mistaken i don't think any of these actors are you know like professional big actors oh. i think they've probably done some stuff now they went specifically to find kind of unknowns for the film some of them have gone on to do stuff, but yeah, I imagine there are people that have had an acting background, but like, you know, you're not talking about anybody who anybody would know. And so like to have kind of that war chest of looks, man, it, it oh, there were so many times it was obvious that like a question had been asked. And as the character, it was just like cut to the core mm-hmm. and like they're just like devastated and falling apart of the inside, but holding it together and just answering. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. My favorite bit of that in the film was it's after the reveal with the twoies mm-hmm. when he asked the father what would you do if he was you know here and he's just he he conveys that i would kill a motherfucker rage <laughs> i believe he said throttle. so well did, did you say throttle is <laughs> yep. yeah <laughs> he says it very polite but you can see in his eyes that that guy wouldn't walk away right <laughs> yeah david pledger who plays russell palmer the father has great clenched jaw acting yes. in multiple scenes in this film particularly <laughs> after they reveal like what matthew's been doing you know manipulating images and whatnot and even though he's silent you can just see the uh, yeah. Clint's going Damn it, off. Matthew! <laughs> yeah. Just really acts with the hinges of that jaw. He has my favorite line in the film, which knowing it's improvised is even great. When he describes Ray's, he wasn't ooky spooky at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. My favorite acting in the film is actually Ray's. So Ray's that great. bit from Russell is great. But Ray, the, the psychic character, is a lot of fun throughout the movie, but particularly when the reveal happens <laughs> that he was seeing. Alice is before all prior to seeing the right. family yeah. and everyone kind of pivots and turns on him and they're interviewing people like, yeah, hey, we were very skeptical of Ray and Ray's you know, kind of being defensive on himself. And his acting is so great in the scene where he's essentially said, well, let me ask you something. Why is charlatan regarded as such a bad word? I think it's a lovely sounding word. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he is tremendous fun, particularly when he actually sees Matthew manipulating doesn't realize Matthew's manipulating the photography, but see, starts seeing the images with Alice in the background. And he's like, well, this is uncharted territory. Yeah. <laughs> Actual damn ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. It's real. What do I do now? I just like the fact that, you know, like Matthew is outed. You know, the whole situation is revealed. And then Ray's like, huh, you should come with me. <laughs> 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 Let's work together. We're going to go uh, see some people. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're, like, you're really good at manipulating video. Why don't we partner up? It, it felt a little shady, yeah. <laughs> which is so perfect with the opening of the film, which is there's voiceover from Alice, which is set over 
these antiquated photographs with ethereal imagery, you know, people silhouetted in the background or, you know, people mid-motion. So there's a bit of a you know, distortion or a haze effect going on, which was, you know, a thing, obviously, in old photography with people saying, hey, give me, you know, a photo of your relative and I'll show you that I can take a photo and, and you know, your dead relatives will appear. So mirroring that whole thing, when you see it in the opening of this film, it's like, okay, that's a really creepy juxtaposition with something that I'm presumably about to watch a ghost story. And then it becomes very much a direct plot point. Yeah. It's all well architected. Yeah. It's all put together. Just top to bottom. It's so well put together. Yeah. Well, should we get into it? We should. Are we not into it? I feel like we're into it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to bounce around on this one probably. But yeah, let's dig in. Let me just get into some of the uh, credits here real quick. We've already dealt with some of these. So obviously it's directed and written by Joel Anderson. We talked about some of the things he's done and what he's not doing now. It was edited by Bill Murphy, who worked on Body Melt, Life, and Romper Stomper. Oh, Romper Stomper. Yep. yep. And the other ones too. It just That's the one I know. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematography by John Brawley, who worked on The Great, The Morning Show, and The Resident. Uh, music by David Patterson, who this is the only thing he did music for, but he did act... In the Beastmaster and Salem's Lot TV series. <laughs> King Voden on Beastmaster, the television show. Love it. <laughs> Thanks for picking that, Nick. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Beastmaster television show. Oh, oh yeah. wait, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. 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 That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it exists. It exists. Wow. <laughs> uh, special makeup effects artist was Larry Van Dunhoven, who uh, worked on Upgrade, oh. Cargo, and he's working on the new Mortal Kombat movie that's coming out. Squee! This was produced by Screen Australia, who also worked on Babadook, Cargo, and Little Monsters. It was also produced by SBS Independent, who worked on the Wilfred series, the original one, which I love. Oh, I love Wilfred. So good. Not quite Hollywood, the wild untold story of Ozploitation. Uh, <laughs> great doc. I still need to watch that one. And of course, as we discussed, is distributed by After Dark Films, who also did other great films like The Final... Dread, and The Broken. It was also distributed by Arclight Films, distributed Lord of War, The O in Ohio, and Possessor. That's a wide breadth of yeah, films. That's a very, that's a very much. <laughs> it's like what you want to you be like, one of these things is like, none of these things are like the other. <laughs> <laughs> and I did want to say one quick thing about the actual location, Lake Mungo. Some facts about it. It's a dry lake located in New South Wales, Australia. It's about 760 kilometers due west of Sydney. It's the central feature of Lake Mungo National Park and is one of 17 lakes in the World Heritage listed Wollanda Lakes region. Many important archaeological findings have been made at the lake. Most significantly, the discovery of the remains of Mungo Man, the oldest human remains found in Australia, and Mungo Woman, the oldest human remains in the world to be ritually cremated and as the location of the Lake Mungo geomagnetic excursion. Did you read about geomagnetic excursion? I did Because I did, and I didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> I read the whole Wikipedia because I, I read, you know, geomagnetic, that sounds fun. And it's like localized issues with gravity that happen every 20,000 years or something. Cool, quick thing of picking the hanging rock when they first show up at the hanging rock, which similar to Lake Mungo is this very ancient mountain feature. First thing they do is, hey, my watch has stopped. Same thing is this bizarre, you know, geomagnetic effect. So mm-hmm. getting to this weird, ageless, ethereal primality to everything. I love it. Lake Mungo itself is incredibly interesting. It's like you said, it's a dry lake and it's very remote. 
And the discovery of Mungo Man and Mungo Woman, which feels weird to say out loud now that I say it, but very Australian, <laughs> really had a significant, and we won't get too far into it. I, I would suggest following this up a little bit. And I was almost going to say, do your own research. Fucking Q-Doc just ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched that too. <laughs> but it it really changed a lot of the way the relationship between the first peoples in Australia, the Aborigines, and white Australia interacted when he when it was discovered in the 70s by Jim Bowler. And it's a fascinating story, and he himself continues to do talks about it, and some of it is on YouTube. And it's it's worth looking up. It's interesting if you have any kind of interest in Australia race relations or even just simple things like song lines and all of that. It's definitely a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. And I was trying to figure out if the location and the fact, you know, these ancient corpses and tied into the movie at all. And I really couldn't do it. I think he just it was a cool place. So he shot there. I don't know for sure, but I don't think the history of the place itself ties too much into the movie and the ideas behind the movies. I can say my wife never went on a field trip there during high school and I made her look at pictures to verify. So. <laughs> is she Australian or is she from like Ohio? She's Australian. <laughs> In fact, she, she lived, she grew up well, a couple of places, but one of them, she went to high school around Sydney okay. and Sydney's not too far from here. It's not too close either. That makes a lot more sense than if she was like from Ohio. I was like, I never went to Australia. Right. <laughs> I do know next time we're visiting her family, I'm going to be taking a trip, though, because it looks cool. I mean, why just find that tree? Heck yeah. Take pictures, put a ghost in the background. Absolutely. If I found that tree, I would 100% dig where I would dig. Just Absolutely. Somebody put oh, something yeah, yeah. there. Somebody put just something there. Just to know. Without question. And if there isn't, there would be. Because you would put something there. <laughs> Lake, Lake As Mugamu a geocacher, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that would be the best geocache ever. Oh, man. Have a little bracelet and a phone in there, you know, because you know, no, I, Nokia can survive underground. So to get into the film a little bit, and we're probably going to be a little bit broader strokes than we normally are with this. So we already talked a little about the intro with the voiceover and the old photographs. Mm-hmm. The very first not antiquated photograph we get, which is a picture of the main family, is very important because this photo is going to come back. Then following that, we get a white text on black background. Which, you know, in December 2005, a tragic accident began a series of extraordinary events that thrust a grieving family into the small Victorian town of Ararat, et cetera, et cetera. Which, again, a lot of documentaries have this, but again, this very picnic and hanging rock, almost exactly the same font, same layout, everything, and almost the same placement. And then we get the news report footage, which was the first bit of visible relief for me watching this again having seen uh, several found footage films that don't do so great with the quote unquote mockumentary format. As soon as you see the news footage in this, yep. my reaction was, Oh, thank God we're in good hands. You mm-hmm. have to do it. It's, yeah. It just gives it that, that texture, that feel it's important. By the way, finding the news footage is about just shooting something in not good quality. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just shooting the same scene. So I've got a, a quote about that actually from him, from that same interview. So the question was, the film has an experimental structure. Can you tell me more about your decision to use a variety of film stock? Joel says, I think some of the themes in the film deal with memory because it's tied with grief. The way that grief is represented is very often through home movies. We show home movies and we show a lot of photographs. So the family has the time to grieve. And I think one of the themes of the film 
it deals with how you deal with grief and how, well, basically what happens in the film is there's a question about whether Alice, the girl who died, has returned as a ghost or some kind of entity and whether that is actually a projection of a part of the members of the family. But in a way, those images of Alice that come, the images in a photograph and a video, there's no rational explanation for. They're like the last home movies. So in a lot of ways, I'm really interested in how our sense of what is real, our sense of how we remember things is videoed through technology. Nowadays, more so phones, video phones. And so I think it was sort of symptomatic that we used almost every format known in this film. The interview sections of the film are shot in 16 millimeter. Landscapes are shot on 35 millimeter to create a sense that it's a legitimate documentary. And I think it worked. Yeah, definitely worked. 100%. I would agree. And I feel like that's like, for me, especially when you're talking about mockumentary terms, multiple formats is the only way to go. Because if you watch a true documentary, like, I mean, I, I watch a ton of them. They're going to jump formats all day because you never know what your archive footage is going to come in at. And that's what makes it real is that, you know, somebody had a cell phone out or somebody had a 16 millimeter camera going at the time or somebody had an old whatever, like just so many different formats. And that's what adds authenticity. And you can try to down convert stuff, you like shoot everything on red and down convert it. But I can I mean, personally, I can always tell because. I'm like, no, that's just downconverted footage. <laughs> Although it looked good and synchronic when you had the video. No, that's real video. That's why. Oh, well, that's why it looked good. <laughs> you do it right. <laughs> we literally, we had a small HD Handycam that shot that footage in, in a way that would make it usable. But that's the thing. It's like you have to have those different formats. If you're dealing with that kind of stuff, people will always be able to tell. Always. Yep. And some of this movie would have been harder if it was all HD, too. That's the thing. It's like the, the, the graininess and, you know, especially when you get into the reveals of the of the credit sequence. Yes. It's like the graininess is what allows you to hide those Easter eggs even more so. Yep. You know, and some of them have multiple Easter eggs hidden in them. Yeah. You know, I talk about like the, the layers the hall- on layers. The hallway sequence to me is always ah. is always the best because you're like, oh, halfway through. June's like, what is that in the background? And then at the at the credit sequence, you're like, what is that in the other background? <laughs> <laughs> and if it was all HD, you'd be like, oh, okay, I see four ghosts in here. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I see all of the people because it's very clear. No. So then we get into footage of local news looking uh, of police looking for Alice because she's been reported missing at the dam. Alice is played by Talia Zucker. From Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. I believe it's the only other thing she did, actually. And the first interview is with Brother Matthew, played by Martin Sharp from Wentworth. And then they go to the father, Russell, played by David Pledger from Blue Healers. And then the mother, June, played by uh, Rosie Trainer from Blue Healers. And talking about how she disappeared just four days before Christmas. Yeah, a couple things on this intro. One is, when you first see the father, Russell... If you're like me and you watch a lot of HBO crime documentaries, the instant he pops up on screen, it's like, oh, this guy did something. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Capturing the Freedmen, so I, this guy did something. Well, you just mentioned one of my favorite documentaries of all time, Capturing the Freedmen. If you haven't watched it, go fucking watch it. You will never feel so confused scene to scene. Yes. Like every scene, you're like, I know what happened. And the next scene, you're like, the opposite happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And intermixed with this, with the actual news footage, you know, we get the, the introduction and we get the setup, which is, you know, the family went out for a swim at this dam. 
Alice went in, their daughter didn't come out. And this is what happened to her. So it's at this point, I, I do have a side question for Dave, which is knowing how big a fan you are of this movie. Have you looked into securing the rights for a remake? I here I would never touch it. I would, I, no, just like it's, it's there, too perfect. No, there there are things. It's like you know we we always talk about. It's like it's like can you make it better? And I don't know how you do. Like honestly, and that that's like as high praise as I can give a movie. Like I watched that film and I was like, I wouldn't touch a frame in that. The only thing you could change is the format. You'd have to go outside the mockumentary format. And yeah, but that I think ruins that would, it. I think it would take it. Yeah, it would, it would just take away so much. There's nothing I would touch of this film. I said it earlier, this film is going to hold up as a film dealing with grief for decades to come. And I think that the fact that it isn't as pretty as it could be will help on its longevity. Yes. Because it's like, oh, it already kind of feels dirty. Yeah. So it, like when we get cleaner, it won't feel like it lost any of that luster because it always it always kind of had a grit. It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Right. That's how I feel about punk rock versus pop punk. But anyway. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're right. It's like you can't touch like... Who's going to fucking redo Iggy Pop's catalog? Anybody? Ooh. No. Bad people. Like, why would you do, why would you do that? You're, gonna, you're just going to fucking ruin it. You want to touch the Ramones? Uh. It's like, no, you're not going to you're not going to do that. Uh. Like psychic TV. No, you just fucking leave that alone. I, I respect the opinion if I can try and sway you a bit, because this has been the topic du jour this week, because mm-hmm. as the week we're recording this, they just announced that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio bought the rights to remake Another Round, the Thomas Vinterberg film with Mads Mikkelsen. And there's been a lot of hubbub about that. Uh, me personally, I- I'm usually of the same mindset as you, with the exception of if you think taking a movie, taking a concept and transposing it to a different region, that you can take something that is culturally intrinsic and unique to wherever you transplant that plot and really bring something interesting to it, then it might be worthwhile. I mean, didn't they didn't they try that with Old Boy? And it was just and it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like old oh boy. The original old oh boy for me is like one of my dead fucking starship films that I'll that I'll watch re, every year. I rewatch that. Yeah, movie. old boy. And I, you know, the remake was fine. If I had never seen the original, I'd be like, oh, that was a fine movie in and of itself. Yeah, but yeah, compared to the original, awful. But do I don't. I never want to be on the. I never want to be on that side of the conversation. That's why I'll never <laughs> touch Lake Monk. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll have to shop this around then. Because so my pitch is, I very much want to take Lake Mungo and set it in Florida and do it in the mudding community of Red, White, and Wasted, the documentary oh that you introduced us to. Oh, my God. I mean, Red, White, and Wasted is pretty fucking brilliant. How great would the setup of this be? Was, you know, I gave the daughter the trucks to the F-150. She went into the trucks. She didn't come out. <laughs> I mean, I mean. And particularly for the news footage. So the news footage we get in this is introduced with the voice of, you know, the normally tranquil setting of Ararat's Norville Dam was shattered yesterday with the disappearance of 16-year-old Alice Palmer. Whereas in this case, you know, if this is about mud Eric, you're talking about ruining two movies. Not only oh, yeah. <laughs> ruining Lake Mungo, but you're also ruining Red, White, and Wasted. Red, White, and Wasted made me feel so bad about humanity that I, by proxy, need to just ruin as many things as I can pull into my orbit. <laughs> Red, White, and Wasted was the scariest thing other than Lake Mungo that I saw last year. Oh, it's horrifying. <laughs> but think of the news report for it. So instead of, you know, this tranquil setting of Eret's Norville Dam, you'd have, on weekends, this patch of godforsaken swamp land resounds with a roar of four-wheeled monstrosities 
phallic insecurity wrought in rubber and steel. <laughs> While the audience rush bras and cackles in a veritable bacchanalia of mankind's deepest, darkest instincts, no longer bound by the constraints of basic morality. <laughs> But tragically, the raucous depravity of Lucifer's butthole was shattered today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're giving me a hard pass on that one, dude. Oh. <laughs> For people that, that can't see this at home, I just literally pulled out a shark. We're leaving the paper sound in. <laughs> and wrote hard pass. <laughs> I like your idea. Fuck no. All right. I'll have to shop it around. <laughs> Come on. The truck sprays mud up. It nope, spatters nope. in the shape of a human figure. Come on. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Every episode, Eric tries to kill me. <laughs> I mean, that was special. Hard pass. Oh. <laughs> So, but yeah, so we have this news footage, Alice goes missing. And so you know, now we're getting just kind of rapid fire cross cutting, speaking to all the various family members. And again, all the, the B roll for this is, you know, very much, you know, the night sky, you know, accelerated footage of the town at night that we get to later, the body is discovered. Yes. Which is again, in terms of just the, the horror of this film hitting you so quickly with the, the shots of, of what's found. And they don't hold back either. It, it's grody and so deeply upsetting. It's just like, oh. I got a phone call during the rewatching of this and I had to pause it and it was right on that frame. No! Oh, oh, no! no! <laughs> so it was just sitting there on my TV, which is like right here. Not okay. <laughs> I'd have been like, hold on, buddy. I got to wait 10 seconds before I can talk to you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's the makeup department did a wonderful job. Yes, wonderful. Yes, wonderful job because that is a fucking terrifying image. Oh, so let me let me toss this out there while we're talking about that. Are any Twin Peaks fans? Oh yeah, yes. yes. This is very Twin Peaks. I'm literally not even a, a like Justin and Aaron. I think would cut me out of the company that I started <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if, I answered, if I answered that question. No, I just because there's so many interesting parallels in this. I mean, the Palmer two Twin Peaks, the Palmer, yeah, yeah, yep. the young woman found dead, mm-hmm. the seedy underbelly of the town, a little. Somehow weirder in Twin Peaks than this, but her secrets. I, yeah. I honestly think that in the end was on purpose. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, there's no way that the the parallels between. I mean, I again, it's it's sad that Joel is a bit of a recluse because yeah. I would like to just talk to him about Twin Peaks because he clearly he's watched that series a lot. Yep. If someone had coffee in this film, there would have been a fish in the percolator. Absolutely, hundred percent. <laughs> I will say that the town in this, though, that well, I guess one difference is the town is a real town, Ararat. Yes. And while I have some facts about it, I'm not going to read them all because it's, you know, a boring ass town in Australia. But it was <laughs> it was a gold rush boom town and it was known as a city of asylums. Huh. So there was a bunch of mental asylums in here for years. I think they're all closed now, but I thought that was kind of fun. That made me think, well, maybe send it here because it's literally a crazy town, but. I mean, isn't every town a crazy town, though? Like, it doesn't matter how, like, normal. You dig deep enough. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. It doesn't matter how, like, normal your town is. Like, you dig deep enough, everything's fucking weird. They just don't all officially collect crazy people. (laughs) I guess I shouldn't say crazy people. Mentally ill people. Although back in the 1860s, it was probably just women with postpartum depression who hadn't read the yellow wallpaper yet. That's the thing. It's like, if you dig far deep enough, you're like, oh, they were just regular people that were dealing with normal things yeah. that everybody deals with but other people just buried those deeply yep 
I have a song about that, though, if you guys want to hear it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a song about feelings. I'm so excited. And it goes a little something like this. When your trash is overflowing, treat it like your feelings and push it down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was delightful. My wife is not a fan of that song. Not even a little bit. I'm trying to teach it to my daughter because I think it'd be hilarious if she sings it. <laughs> oh, You're welcome, guys. This is the best episode we've ever done. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Well, there's another pitch for a remake. Like Mungo the Musical. No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> Look what I found in this picture. <laughs> Oh, no. I'm not even going to butcher a musical right now. Well, be appropriate for Twin Peaks. You can do Alice's in reverse, basically, like she's, since her fate is basically working its way back and then play it back. So she's like the man from another place in Twin Peaks and speaks all her lines like this. He's my cousin. This is where we get that bit. It was a bit we talked about earlier with the car stalling and they're forced to drive in in reverse, which again, in terms of... I still don't understand that, but I I literally was all in on it. Like, I don't understand how, like, what is this? Is is this fucking Days of Thunder where you can only get one gear? It's like, give me the top gear! That's my engine in that car and that's what I'm pushing! (laughs) I didn't think that there would be a chance that I'd ever throw that in, but here we are. (laughs) I wish Robert Duvall had played the psychic in this. (laughs) Far less comforting when he's holding, you know, at the woman's hand that he meets. You're going to die, goddammit. You need to fucking accept this. (laughs) This might be the only movie where the seance doesn't lead to anything. It's like, yeah, we had a seance and it was bullshit. We're done. (laughs) Nothing. No, it technically it does because if you look at the video of the uh, the picture again, talking about like what's revealed in the mise-en-scene of the film, uh, which is it's a bit pretentious because you're just like, oh, but you have to look at the whole frame (laughs) and not what the director is trying to get you to focus on, which is kind of fascinating and why I think, you know, it's one of those films that I stands up to rewatches. Again, like I, I rewatch it a couple of times and it's like every time I'm just like looking for the things, be like, oh, I did see it that time. And it's like, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> and I like I like missed, I still missed several of the things. Yes. That are revealed, yep. even knowing what those things are and where they happen. Yep. I still fucking miss them. And that to like, me is where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Ah, it's yeah. gone. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I always have a hard time because I, I said, all right, this watch, I'm just going to look at the backgrounds. And then, you know, halfway through, I'm just so engrossed in the story and what's happening. Like, oh, shit, look to the left. And that's like a wonderful way of how he told the story and how he, he drew you in and then like interspersed these bits where you're like, oh, right, I'm supposed to be looking at everything. And it's tough to look at everything when what he's giving you to focus on is important to the story at where you are in the story. And I think that that's why it's a shame we'll never theoretically, as it looks like, we'll never see a movie from him because I the way he structured this is flawless, which is why I would 
never touch this film. Honestly, if somebody tried to touch this film, I'd probably try and bankrupt their company. <laughs> just, so that, <laughs> just so that they would never have a chance to ruin this for me. Don't do me like that, Dave. I just want to bring mudding to the masses. I'm sorry, man. It's it's like... But I absolutely agree with you. There's a few hills that I'll die on, but Lake Mungo is perfect. It's one of them. Yeah, we said at the onset, this is going to be just us gushing. Yeah. This is a perfect film. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So... The autopsy is performed. Alice spends Christmas Day in the morgue. The funeral comes and goes. About 10 days after the funeral, they start hearing noises and doors slamming. And they get the door rehung. They call pest control. Stuff's still happening. Neighbors even are getting this bad feeling coming from the house. And the mom starts having these reoccurring nightmares. But Alice coming down the hall dripping and just standing at the end of her bed. Now, one of the things I want to mention real quick, uh, right up front, spoiler, is that there are multiple... I think we're past spoilers, aren't we? I know, I know. <laughs> it is all we're well past spoilers at this point. Like, if you're still listening to this and you haven't watched the movie, you're dumb. Sorry. That's fair. You're dumb. Every single dream or psychic trance, anything that's described, has some visual representation in the film. Yeah. It's very much a... You get the sense that the mom and daughter are to some degree slightly psychic themselves and are just constantly catching glimpses of each other throughout time and even overlap with like other people at one point later on the mom talks about having this dream of coming into her room her daughter doesn't know she's there then turns around and comes at her and we see later there's like identical footage of her brother doing it that's her father i think that says russell that, has yeah, yeah russell has, oh yes has. i apologize but yeah no there, there's a whole bunch of the, of that that's like premonitions mm-hmm. and it, it's so weird because you know you, you can easily discount that stuff however I, i'm going to share like a, a personal story my wife went to a psychic at one point and after the reading the psychic was like you have the gift to this and like said that to my, <laughs> but also like my wife can feel things like with her mom and like people in her lineage uh-huh. nice in like a weird way that she can't explain hmm. and so it's like it's like ugh, ooh, it's tough to say that that's like completely bunk because there is you know if you want to say that all energy is intertwined in this universe it's not far-fetched to say that like you yeah, know you can feel things you'd be able to like sense those things especially in in like you know a, a mother child relationship you know because the bond is so strong yeah, I, I think there's definitely stuff that we don't quite understand in terms of how we interact with each other and the world, whether you want to call that psychic powers or whatever. I, I think we don't quite have the words for it yet. Right. But I absolutely believe that it's it's a real thing. Absolutely. And I mean, we're doing a horror movie podcast, so it, I, I would just say like 80 percent of our listeners have to at least have some idea about that stuff. I mean, like, come on, you, you have to. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there's too much to not know about to be like, oh, that doesn't exist. It's like, well, how do you know? Like, it might exist, like probably doesn't, but it it might. And like, that's the fun part about horror and genre in general is exploring that and also exploring real like you know if you if you look at this it's like oh it's a ghost movie it's like yeah but this movie is really about a family grieving yeah and how a family grieves and that to me is is the true essence of this film and that's that was my takeaway was just like you know it really the exploration of grief you know in the same way she dies tomorrow is an exploration of morality or more mortality rather it's like you're exploring what that process looks like through several different vessels and those vessels can be completely different from one another, but also completely authentic and real 
to that person. Absolutely. So, you know, the family's doing their best to get through all this. The father throws himself into his work. Matthew throws himself into his photography. The mom is just kind of left free-floating, unfortunately. Uh, but then we have a situation where Matthew is taking these backyard photos. And in the most recent one he does, because he's been doing them every few months for three years, the most recent one he has, has Alice standing in the backyard against the fence. And this moment kind of rallies the family, kind of like, wow, you know, she's kind of reaching out to us. You know, we have some connection to her. And then it's, this is doubled down on by the fact another man taking video at the local dam looks at the video later and there's an appearance of Alice in the background there as well. Yeah, doing her best Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, the mom not having seen the body is like, maybe she's still alive. And the dad's like more skeptical, but... She convinces them that maybe he made a mistake. So they have the body exhumed. And unfortunately, DNA samples are taken. Our identity is confirmed. So the fact that it's not actually her is just kind of devastating to the father. Like, you know, he, he had had his closure, had been given hope, and then it was taken out from underneath him again. So it's just like, oh. Yeah, that's rough. I will say that somewhere in this section, there's a scene of her talking and chopping vegetables. Actually, chopping herbs. And ever since Paranormal Activity 4, <laughs> I notice when people are chopping stuff in films. And I'll say that the mom is very good at it. Much better than in Paranormal Activity 4. Yes. <laughs> Normally when I see folks chopping stuff, I think of Sono Sheehan's movie Suicide Circle. So I'm going to try and think of Paranormal Activity 4 now because that's a much better one to think about. <laughs> I'm just saying the mom in this knows what a green pepper is. <laughs> Doesn't need to watch YouTube videos about the wonders of peppers. <laughs> How do I cut this? <laughs> so Matthew keeps hearing noises in the hallway, sets up a camera, see what he can catch what's going on. And the very first night, uh, footage is captured of a figure walking through the hallway, at which point they tap the psychic ray, played by Steve Jodrell from Halifax FP. June reaches out to him, and he explains that his job is mostly trying to show his clients that death is not a full stop. There's more to it. You know, we progress on, even though we don't know what it is. And we see a videotape of Ray and the mom having a session. She's having this waking dream of going to her house, giving Ray a, a mental tour. She goes to Alice's room. Her sneakers are there, which implies Alice should be there. She goes into the room. She sees Alice sitting in the chair. She looks sad. At which point, you know, Ray says, why don't we hold a seance? You know, Ray is obviously trying to give them some closure. And the dad refuses until the son talks him into it. Matthew records the seance. The seance is a total bust until they review the footage. I'm telling you, it's one of the very few seances in films that doesn't end in total disaster. <laughs> and there's an image of Alice seen in the background, which Ray's like, I can't see I've seen that before. <laughs> That's new. <laughs> That's definitely ooky spooky. Yeah, <laughs> ooky spooky for sure. <laughs> They set up more cameras on the house for 24-7 footage. There's another couple shots of Alice captured in the images. And then the Withers video comes out, where they realize that they were filming the same day uh, that the previous man at the dam had been filming, and the footage shows that it was actually Matthew who was that day. Wah, wah. He mistook for Alice because he was wearing her jacket. And he confesses that he faked the photos, and he faked all the images. With his mom being interested in having Alice exhumed, he wanted to help convince the dad that we should do it. He just wanted any chance for her to be alive and was trying to convince them to move forward. And it worked. He admits that you know this might have made things harder for his mom, but he really didn't intend that. Somewhere in here, there's a cut scene where it shows Alice in her room 
and you can see the posters on her wall. Uh-oh. And I, I just want to <laughs> admit that I spent far too much time trying to figure out what one of them was. One of them was hot because it was the Jesus and Mary Why thing. do you do this to yourself? Because I have a problem <laughs> in a podcast. No, because if the director put it there, he wants you to understand why he put it there. Respect. Yeah, and Jake and Jake is just trying to understand fully. Well, I, I will say somebody involved in this has pretty good taste in music mm-hmm. because one of the posters is for the I Hate Rock and Roll 7-inch sleeve from the Jesus and Mary Chain, which is a fabulous song. And the other one, the one I spent so much time on, is a poster for a band called UMI, which is an Aussie alt-rock band. And I couldn't track down the actual poster, but I spent a significant amount of time trying, and then my wife spent a significant amount of time trying because... Sometimes I poison her with my ideas. <laughs> anyway, Alice had pretty good taste in music. Just throwing that out there. Or, you know, Joel Anderson did. But somebody did. <laughs> so, of course, Matthew faked it all. This breaks out in the news. Just goes badly for the family as a whole. It's just the end of hope for all of them. The moms hit hard. and It's reminding her about how she had a wedge between her and her mother. And she felt the same with, with Alice. And she couldn't open herself fully to her. At which point, Matthew takes off with Ray for his road trip. One bit with June is is the documentary folks being a little cruel in making her read her daughter's journal entry, which is just an absolutely crushing scene. But in amongst this is the one of the crucial lines from June for where we go at the end, which is, I hope Alice did know how much I loved her. I guess I held something back a little as she grew older. That would be the saddest thing. To think she might not know. <laughs> just, uh, at which point my note is just two lines of, oh, <laughs> yeah. Dense. Maybe not the saddest thing. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that's, no, but that is the, it's up there. No, no, I, I, I again, you know, I watching this as a, as a new parent, it colors how I watch the film. And that is like, that to me was just like, that one fucking crushed me. Yes. Where I was like, all I want you to know is like how much I love you and care about you. And like, that's that's the only thing that matters. The rest of this is like fucking bullshit. I, I've seen way too many movies like this and way too many of this situation occurring. So like I've got a natural instinct inside of me that no matter how a situation is ending and when I'm leaving it, I will always, it's like good times, middle of a darn fight. If I'm going at the door, like when the last thing is like, I love you <laughs> and I'll see you soon. You know, it's like, we're cool. I love you. Bye. <laughs> Wait, whenever we part, you always say go to hell. What do you what? Well, I want to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe read a lot into that. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Jake. Go to hell. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Seems on brand to me. <laughs> So while Matthew's away, he leaves the cameras running in the house. And when he comes back, there's like another shot of Alice in the film. And there's like no way he would have had time or effort to be able to uh, alter them. So the mom's like, well, maybe there's more of this. Maybe despite his faking it, there's some legitimate stuff in here. So she goes back to review all the footage and finds that their damn neighbor, Brett, was in the house six months after Alice's death searching her room. So mom searches it as well and finds Alice's safe. In it, she finds the tape. Ugh. Yeah, so it turns out, you know, Alice had her own secrets that she was keeping. Now, the line is, Alice kept secret that she had secrets. No one had any clue things like this were happening. But it turns out Alice had a sexual relationship with the Tuies, the neighbors. Another little detail here. Tui, 
the, their name is also one of the, the national beer brands in Australia that's a functionally Budweiser. Yeah. It's like the, you know, the standard. So it's it's fine. It's not great. But, you know, whenever I was with my wife's family, they would always be drinking Tui's. So when they said, and the neighbor's the Tui's, I was like, hey. And then you get revealed what's going on. I'm like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> that's on brand for Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> the family never gets any closure with the Tui's because they had actually left before the tape was found. And ever since then have been on the lam. No one's ever found them. But the father, like we said earlier, is livid with them, would clearly just lay them the hell out if you ever saw them. Yeah, and they actually ask him, how do you feel towards Brett now? And he's like, oh, I fucking love him. How the fuck do you think I feel? <laughs> <laughs> and the father actually thinks that maybe this kind of situation, this this moment in her life that she couldn't share with them is one of the things that created wedges and created distance. And maybe that distance is why she went off by herself and maybe is even partially responsible for her death and their loss. And so he's just focusing his hate in this direction. And then June finds in Alice's diary, the business card for Ray. This was a nice twist. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Ray says he was honoring her confidentiality and wanted to be there to help them. But he had totally seen Alice previously to help her interpret her dreams because she was having dreams that were scaring her. After going through the similar kind of daydream house walkthrough that he did with her mother, they only get the beginning of it, though. They cut it off. You get it. that's saved for later. And the whole family at this point is just like, Ray, you're shady as hell. <laughs> you know, it's one of those is like, well, he is a psychic, you know, <laughs> a TV psychic. Excuse me. No, no. So in the rewatch of this film, uh, obviously I knew where the Ray storyline was going. And it, again, this is. Obviously not not a documentary, <laughs> but I rewatched the scenes with Ray and he is never disingenuous to his goal. No. And obviously he never says that he had met Alice. However, he never taints what he's trying to do with the fact that him and Alice had had this previous relationship. So for me, none of that, like on the second viewing, I was like, I am all team Ray yeah. on this because like, yeah, no, why? Why would you tell somebody? that and if you got a chance to explore this further that only bolsters your ability as a psychic to be like i was right (laughs) (laughs) in this film i seriously question ray's psychic abilities okay i'm not entirely certain he's a psychic you think that being said i think he's a solid grief therapist if it were he's taking these people who are looking for potentially a kind of supernatural approach to this. He's like, look, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to take you on. I'm going to help you find the closure you need. I'm going to help you understand the process and give you what you need to move forward. He's actively trying to help these people. Yeah. Like he's not a charlatan in yeah, that. He's, he's not trying swindling to take them. them in any way. Exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, he is, like you said, sincere and clearly cares about the people he's working with. That being said, uh, this movie gives significantly more potential to the mom and daughter being psychics than he is yeah which is interesting (laughs) i I would say there's some interesting ethics questions in the ray character and how he carries himself well i mean yeah he's not a fucking doctor right i'm not sure psychic (laughs) patient uh confidentiality is a thing that exists (laughs) i also think if he was meeting with the daughter and then went to the family he knew who they were ahead of time and he knew that you know, why they contact him. And it feels a little bit shady to me. Like, yes, his intentions may be noble, 
I think they also might be kind of misguided, but he doesn't seem like a bad person to me. No, no, no. no. And I, I think he was trying to close a loop in his own story. Yes. By going to the family. And like that to him was like, if you look at your own self as, you know, you are the hero in your own story. Yep. That's Ray in this situation where he's like, I am the fucking protagonist. And it's like, no, no I was there for Alice and I'll be there for them too. Right. <laughs> and, and he very particularly when he's introduced, one of the bits of himself that he throws out is he's, oh, I have a daughter, but she lives with my wife. Right. So it's again, this element of distance and is familial investment yeah. that he would be integrating by proxy right. into wanting to solve this dilemma. Mm hmm. And then he brings the son who was faking photos on a trip with him to talk to other people. So, well, I mean, okay, now that's that's some bullshit. But like, <laughs> I'm a huckster, not a charlatan. <laughs> a huckster, not a charlatan. <laughs> I'm not ooky spooky. I'm flimmy flammy. <laughs> I am lying to people and faking stuff for their benefit. <laughs> I mean, but honestly, but okay, like, you know, I don't want to say that all mediums are this, but like, if you look, that's that's like, if a medium gives you closure. To your grief. They've done their job. That's what you went to them for. And they've done their job. Whether or not they actually connected with somebody from the afterlife or not. That's a bit of a gray area. If they've given you the closure that you need to move forward. Then technically you've gotten what you've paid for. Whether or not that's real or not. I mean is is a bit of a placebo I guess. But they feel they've rendered a service and they're getting their payment for it. Right. Correct. Yeah. And I would say that this exact scenario works out okay in this film. Mm -hmm. We have seen it work out poorly in other films like Ouija 2 Origin of Evil. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a gray area, but there's different outcomes. That's all I'm throwing (laughs) out there. One other thing on to Ray's detriment, too, is when they show footage of him speaking with one of the other clients, you know, he invites him out to this hotel room where it's just him and the client. You know, he's petting the hand. He's like, you scared of dying? It's like, I'm not sure I'd want to drive out and have someone ask me, you scared of dying? He's like, are you the tooth fairy, Ray? It's like, you know, <laughs> the slideshow, like, do you see? This is my design. <laughs> Eric, I don't, I don't know how you live your life, but I'm fucking in on, I'm in on some dude inviting me to a fucking sketchy ass hotel room in the middle of nowhere, asking me if I'm scared to die. I'd be like, so what are you doing next month? <laughs> you want to play this game? But that's because you've got nine axes in your trunk, man. Not everybody's got nine axes and knows how to use them. I'm like, I'm not fucking scared of shit. I'm gonna die eventually, maybe. <laughs> Oh, your next situation. Dave has got the uh, t- two fisting throwing axes. I, I fucking, I'll kill you with all my axes. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we get another interview. I believe it's the ex-boyfriend, Jason, who's talking about how there was a camp trip to Lake Monk. By, by the way, hold on. Sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but Jason's fucking interviews are fucking hilarious. Yes. <laughs> like, he is so perfectly cast. <laughs> In this film that I that I just wanted to mention, like how perfectly I, he's never done anything else. I've looked it up like <laughs> fucking brilliant, brilliant performance. I've never fucking seen a teenage boyfriend portrayed as perfectly as he is. Anyway, go ahead. Continue. <laughs> so from that camp trip, she had come home without her bracelet, watch or phone. And the family hadn't thought much of it at the time. But. Jason brings it up to the family again, which piques June's uh, curiosity. She gets a hold of this footage from the lake where they see footage of Alice looking forlorn and kind of upset. And so she looks into it more, and there's additional footage of Alice burying something in the desert under a tree. Uh, the family goes back to Lake Mungo, finds the tree. They go at night not to be disturbed. 
and they find a plastic bag with a bracelet, watch, and phone. They recharge the phone, rewatch the video, and basically Alice has gone out into the desert by herself. And what she runs into is an image of herself drowned. She basically is coming face to face with the realization and premonition of her own death. I mean, I had some bad experiences on school field trips, but whew, this one takes the cake. <laughs> which they intersperse with her interview with Ray, which she's talking about. She's scared of dying. She's scared of what happens in these dreams. Something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't happened yet, but it's on its way. It's getting closer. That that line fucked me up bad. Oh, man. it it's. I get goosebumps thinking about it right now. The whole scene is just like, oh, dear God. And at this point, you know, the mom is convinced Alice knew she was going to die. Dad, not so much. But, you know, the mom is finding her closure in this. You know, he thinks Alice saw a ghost, but didn't think she knew it was her own. Matthew believes she knew. By the time they get home, the house feels different. Everything's calmer. Mom thinks, you know, Alice wanted the family to know the truth before she could leave. You know, Ray comes around to visit. You know, it's clear that they're just they finally have their closure. They understand what she was going through and that she knew it was coming and that this is the way it had to be. And all this helps them decide to move, to actually move out of the house. June's final consultation with Ray. She has another oh boy. mental walkthrough. This is devil. This makes me want to cry every time. Before we get to that, I just want to throw out one last stupid detail. <laughs> so when after they decide to move, there's a scene of a party and there's a song playing. And it's a ska song. So, of course, oh. I had to find this. And it's a song called Sweet Enough by the ska band The Trojan Horns, which there's not a lot out there, but they were a big part of the 2000s Aussie ska scene. So if you're watching this, Sweet Enough. Now to the devastating ending. <laughs> <laughs> there's your one bit of pleasantness before we all get wrecked. Yeah. There's this interspersed interview between June and Alistair Ray. And it is clearly both of them talking about the same scene mm -hmm. and it overlaps with them moving out. And it's clear they're talking about this moment. And it's all about how June has entered the house and she walks to Alice's room and Alice sees her come into the room. But mom doesn't say anything and mom doesn't see Alice there. And then mom leaves the room and mom is gone. It's just like it's this devastating admission that alice's spirit has been in the house the whole time and she's going to still be there as they leave her and cannot interact with her and she's just alone i'm like oh my god i can't i can't even it it hurts every time i see it it's so rough it's and brilliant but yeah rough. oh my god and then there's the final shot of the family packet of leaving. And we see Alice's spirit in the goddamn doorway, like just like waving. <laughs> she might as well be waving goodbye. Like, <laughs> yeah, quick note on that final shot. Well, aside from the, the credit sequences, this shot where, it, you know, zooms in slowly on the apparition of Alice standing there in the house. Partially wanted Karen Gann to walk up next to her out of the end of Oculus and go, you too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what got you? Killer Mare, what got you? Yeah, you don't even want to fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> fucking damn. <laughs> to back up a bit for the ending that precedes this with, with the audio being spliced together. So what I'm about to say, and this is not entirely a joke, but it is a very silly demonstration of it. If anyone out there either reads or watches My Hero Academia, 
there is a big fight sequence between the Superman analog All Might and his villain, who's known as All for One, which is this long drawn out battle. They're both just pummeling the hell out of each other. And it ends with All Might throwing a punch and All for One not barely being affected. You're like, I thought you had more in you. And All Might says, that's because I didn't put my back into it. And then you realize he's channeled all of his power into his broken right arm and throws this knockout punch, which he calls the, quote, United States of Smash. Because <laughs> all of his punches are something, you know, Texas Smash, whatever. This finale is the United States of Smash of horror movie finales. Yes. Where it's, you're watching this movie. <laughs> that was, and but, it's but, like, but, but, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. That analogy was fucking deep and, <laughs> and took me a minute. Continue on. I just wanted to be able to say, who do you recommend Lake Mungo to? Well, I recommend it to fans of My Hero Academia, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, any Shonen Bottle Mongo, really, I think will appreciate it. <laughs> Honestly, never seen any of that or never read any of that, and I'm fucking in. Go ahead, continue. But it, where you're watching it and this whole thing is like, man, this is bad. But And then it just comes with a haymaker, yep. which just shatters you. Again, I keep coming back to the word shattering. Yeah. A lot of reviews you'll see for this film are going to refer to it as one of the scariest movies ever made. I think it's quite scary, but for me, what I keep thinking is it's is, is the most shattering, yep. yes. one of the absolute most shattering films I've seen. I would not call this the scariest film I've seen. Uh, this is one of the saddest narrative films I've seen. Like, I put this up there with, you know, we talked about Dear Zachary yeah. earlier. If anybody's ever watched the documentary Dear Zachary, Ugh. that fucking Ugh. destroyed. I, I watched that in a room with two other veterans, and the three of us were openly crying. And I don't know if you've ever seen what it takes to get three ex-military people to cry (laughs) openly in a room, but it's a lot. I equate this to that. And it's like, that's the only thing where I just like wept openly and was just like, this hurts my soul. I don't know if it's scary, but it it hurts my soul. But also in a way that like we, we talked about earlier, like it's cathartic and it like grief is a thing that we all feel at some point in our life. And the importance of this film is is to understand that that grief is not a solitary experience. Um, it's not something that you go through alone. It's something that everybody has gone through, and there's just different variances of it, and there's different versions of it. But it, it's something that we all go through. Yeah, and the line from June earlier about death, which you know, death takes everything eventually. Death takes everything. I wrote that. By the way, that's on one of my fucking post-it notes. Death takes everything eventually. Is is the line of this movie it's the meanest dumbest machine there is and it just keeps coming yeah and it doesn't care there's nothing else to know about it really and again it's it, we talked before about this unfeeling you know sort of neutrality of, of the the universe around these characters where it's that it's cold unfeeling and it's unstoppable yeah. yep yeah and i i would agree i wouldn't say that this is movie is is traditionally scary but i do think it's one of the best at inducing and ever increasing sense of dread yep yes (laughs) but it's not necessarily dread at you know the monsters in the closet or something it's dread that you know by the end of this you're going to have to confront some stuff that you don't necessarily want to confront when you sat down to watch a ghost story and then it just works you over and it just it's it's a damn near perfect horror movie that works on a lot of levels i actually feel it's both I feel that everything you said is absolutely right, but I also feel it is a terrifying movie in that. Na- I'm you- going to need that as a soundbite. Got it. <laughs> I'll snip that audio for you. Jake is right. Jake is right. <laughs> but 
I think that is a, a, incredibly true, especially on second and third and, and going forward rewatches. But I remember the first watch too. And when you go in not knowing what you're expecting, even the setup brings in some true fear. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a horror fan, there are certain tropes it plays on. Oh, absolutely. That hit you, even though it doesn't do them. This is the kind of movie where I kept waiting for the jump scare that never came. Mm-hmm. I kept waiting for the boogeyman behind the door that wasn't there. And even though the movie doesn't hit those, it hints at the possibility of them just enough where it's terrifying on a first viewing and then so much deeper on a second. And it's so rewarding on all those levels. I love this film top to bottom. This was, I think we talked about this on my, my interview and this is why I'm here is like, this is the film. If there's ever been a film that I'm so mad that took me, 13 years to watch yes <laughs> like this is the one because justin and aaron literally put this on on my fucking to watch list several times because we have like a hey just watch these films and lake mungo has been on there forever and i've just never got around to it and i'm i, I think i tweeted about that i was like i'm so December fucking 27th 2020 i have the tweet in front of me i'm like i'm so fucking <laughs> mad at myself that i'd never seen that before then because God damn it, if it's not a fucking beautifully perfect film on grief, you know, wrapped up in horror. And that, that that's the, again, the beauty of horror is that we can start, it, it's not anything new. It's we, we can start kind of unwrapping some really, really intricate storylines of humanity. And grief is one that, you know, this one tackles so fucking well. Mm-hmm. Sorry for cussing. That's no, fine. I'm not that sorry. <laughs> we we do it a lot. Yeah. If we edited the profanity out of this prod, suddenly our six-hour episode length wouldn't be as big of a problem. <laughs> We're an hour-long series. <laughs> Knock this one out on your commute. Which brings us to the credits. Oh. So if it wasn't bad enough that the reveal is that the place is haunted and her spirit is left alone to like kind of be sad and suffer on its own. Then the credits are like, guess what? You thought you were paying attention, but you were not. <laughs> As it goes through multiple images that we have seen a couple times over each. And then it zooms in on the sections where, guess what? She was in every single <laughs> instance. She was always there. Even the shots that were doctored. Yes. She was yes! actually there. Oh. Not including the doctored image. And, and oh, that just like... The first watching of this movie. My jaw hit the floor. <laughs> I, I remember it like fucking vividly. It was 2.30 in the morning. My daughter was sleeping and I was like fucking watching this. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like I missed, I missed all of this. Like, yep. like yep. I missed all of this. And even on the second and third viewing, I still missed a couple of them. Yeah. Even in looking for them. But that credit sequence is arguably, uh, like I said, one of the best, if not the best credit sequences that has existed in, in cinema today. And not only is it just flooring, but it, like I said before, they're not cheating. No. This is not it's all stuff there. they threw in after the fact. It's all in the film from the beginning. It's all fucking there. Oh. It's grainy and it's tough to see, but it's all there oh. in the same way that they reveal it. And that is the true genius of this film is that, again, we, we talked about it. You go through like several bits of this film it's like the first bit is about this and the second bit is about this and the third bit is about like well we took everything and just said fuck all of it it's the real ghost movie and i think that that's what makes this movie special but then it even goes another step 
Because after you get this footage, and you get through all the end credits, the very end, there's this very <laughs> low-key, quick shot of, like, you feel like you're in Lake Mungo in the dry bed at night. You can only see when the lightning flashes, and there's this woman in shadow just looking at you. And it's like, what was that? Why? Why? <laughs> it's incredibly unnerving. Oh, my God. This movie uh, never stops throwing punches. I love it. The movie never stops throwing punches. We've talked a lot about a lot of awful, shattering stuff in this. But to talk about something positive, Dave, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on to do this movie. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Oh, man. Like I said, when I found out you guys were, were doing this film, like the, the, this film hit me harder than any film I've watched probably in the last 10 years. I I. I needed, I need, this was therapy. I needed to talk about this movie <laughs> to, to somebody that had seen it recently and wanted to talk about it because like, oh, it, there's so much to unpack in this movie. I, I can't, I can't talk about how, how brilliant this film is enough. And if you haven't seen it and if, you, if you've experienced loss at all, this film is a perfect film for that. And it will, will kind of allow you that ability and that room to experience those emotions that you may not have experienced in the actual loss. Absolutely. Amen. Heck yeah. Everyone who's listening, thank you so much for listening to this. This is Eric signing off. This is Nick Leamy saying thank you so much. This is Jake saying goodnight. This is Dave. I'm here. Always. Perfect. Much like the movie, leaving you on a traumatizing ass note. <laughs> I like your idea. Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs>